My name is Judy Cooper, and I'm the coordinator of public programs here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the um, Shapiro Lecture Series this evening. This is a series of lectures that was um, it's been funded by a bequest from Mrs. Gloria L. Shapiro, and we have them several times a year on a sort of an irregular basis. It's when somebody wonderful like Ariel Sabar comes along. So Ariel Sabar's family story is extraordinary. And My Father's Paradise, the book in which he tells this story, is also extraordinary. It received the 2008 National Book Critics Circle Award for autobiography. It also won the Rhoda Book Award given by the Church and Synagogue Library Association, and it was a finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Not bad for your first book. It also received rave reviews from reviewers around the country, and it was selected as a Jewish community read in cities around the country, including Baltimore, uh, last winter. Uh, I just wanted to read you uh, one comment from a reviewer from the Christian Science Monitor, and he described Ariel's book most clearly and succinctly, and I quote, A wonderful, enlightening journey, a voyage with the power to move readers deeply, even as it stretches across differences of culture, family, and memory. Ariel Sabar grew up in Los Angeles, and he now lives in Washington, D.C., he covered the 2008 U.S. presidential campaign um, for both campaigns for the Christian Science Monitor. He previously worked here at the Baltimore Sun and the Providence, Rhode Island Journal, and his writings have appeared in a variety of publications from the New York Times to Mother Jones. Um, this is one of my favorite books of this year, and I'm just delighted that all of you could be here to uh, listen to Ariel talk and and welcome him to the Pratt. Thank you. Well, thank you for that beautiful introduction, and, and thank you all for coming out. This is really a beautiful room, and I've I've always had a fondness. I mean, I, I did work for Baltimore Sun from I guess 2001 to 2004. Spent a lot of time in the city. I still have a great fondness for it and its neighborhood and its neighborhoods and its, its wonderful people. So thank you all very much for coming. Growing up um, in, in Los Angeles uh, in the 1980s, I really tried to make myself into this consummate Southern California boy. I, uh, I read Surfer Magazine for fashion advice. I played drums with a group of musicians who worshipped the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And at least a few of the kids I went to school with in, in West L.A. were actually on TV or in the movies. And so to keep up, I went to uh, youth acting classes. Uh, After-school acting classes were kind of L.A.'s version of Little League. Um, but, you know, even as a boy, I sensed that this L.A. act of mine was, was something of a house of cards because I knew that there was one man who, if I led him too close to me, could knock the whole thing down. Worse, he happened to live with us. He was my father. He was, you know, as I saw him then, this Stone Age relic, a man born in a forgotten village of Jews in the mountains of northern Iraq. And these were Jews who were so cut off from the rest of the world that they still spoke Aramaic. I mean, this was supposed to be a dead language. Um, but these were, there were Jews up there who spoke this 3,000-year-old language, not just of the Talmud, uh, the definitive book of, of Jewish laws, but also, allegedly, of Jesus. And no one in all of L.A., I was convinced, was less cool than my father. 
I remember uh, the way he would dress. He would dress in these sort of clashing um, pastel plaids that he bought off the bargain rack at J.C. Penney. He looked like he was going golfing, um, although I don't think he, he even knew what, what golf was. Um, he would, you know, L.A. is a place where you can get, you know, $300 haircuts. My dad would cut his hair with these razor combs that he bought through the mail. He cut his hair himself. And um, in a city of BMWs and Audis, my, my dad drove a Chevette uh, without so much as a working radio. Now, you know, he had been born to an illiterate mother um, in a mud shack in the hills of northern Iraq and had somehow, I, I didn't care to know how, wound up as a professor at UCLA. It wasn't in some fashionable field like film studies or biotech, but as an expert in his own dying mother tongue, a language no one really even spoke anymore. Now, of course, anyone who has kids here knows that, you know, as, as teenagers, kids rebel against their parents. It's part of sort of growing up. But my, my defiance had just one target, and that was my father. Um, at one point, and I'm sort of ashamed to admit it now, I, I stopped calling him Abba or Dad. I, when we were in public, um, and I would, I would call him by his first name, hoping that no one would know that we were related. Now, it didn't help that I came of age in the early 1980s, and anyone who, who knows, um, who, who may have spent any time in L.A. knows that uh, Los Angeles was, and then and still is, the largest Iranian diaspora. There are more Persians living in Los Angeles than in any place outside of Iran. And I, you know, I, I came of age in the early 1980s, right after the Iranian hostage crisis, and I remember skateboarding in the public schoolyard across from where I grew up and seeing some pretty uh, ugly graffiti on the walls, phrases like Iranians go home or USA all the way, death to Iran. Now, my father was neither Iranian nor Muslim nor Arab, but I thought those angry words were meant expressly for me. I figured whoever wrote, whoever hated the Iranians, um, whatever kids wrote that, probably hated Iraqis just, just as much. It didn't matter, really. I don't think they made a distinction. And... Um, you know, I wanted to be all-American, and I was pretty sure that the only thing holding me back was my Middle Eastern father. Now, it would take me a pretty long time to see that our roots didn't have to hold us back. My father, I would come to learn, was born into a community that defied nearly every Jewish stereotype. The Jews of Kurdistan lived not in the cities, not in cities primarily, but in the mountains. They weren't primarily merchants and shopkeepers, but had kind of unusual jobs for Jews. Um, they were lumberjacks, uh, wheat farmers, river rafters, um, black market smugglers. And while their brethren in Europe suffered centuries of persecution and, of course, the Holocaust, the Jews of Kurdistan lived mainly at peace among Muslim and Christian neighbors for hundreds of years. I'll give you some examples from my father's uh, hometown. My, my father lives in a, in, a, in a town called Zaho. He grew up in a town called Zaho, which is at the very northern tip of Iraq. So it's just sort of north, just sort of south of the Turkish border. And he recalled that Muslims would stub their cigarettes in respect as Jews walked home from the synagogue on Saturdays. Um, they would bring Jews gift baskets of milk and bread at the conclusion of Passover. And my uncle Tzion, um ran a, a kosher kebab shop in Mosul. Uh, hard to believe, uh, but he was kind of the kosher kebab king of Mosul in his day. Um, you know, this is one of the hubs of the insurgencies now, one of the most dangerous places to be, certainly not a place associated with um, religious pluralism. But back in the day, uh, there was a place called Tzion Kebabchi, Tzion the Kebab Guy. Uh, and Tzion would buy his meat not from a Jewish butcher, but from an Arab Muslim butcher who let a rabbi into his shop to certify that his cuts hewed to the Jewish dietary laws. And I think that the relations between Muslims and Jews were one of the reasons that my father came to see his hometown as a kind of Garden of Eden. 
Now, for outsiders, um, this little-known corner of the diaspora was was pretty exotic. Um, there was a Jewish-American professor named Walter Fischel, who taught at Berkeley for many years, who visited in the 1940s. And when he comes back and reports on his trip, he sounds less like the you know German-educated, button-down academic that he is than, than something like a more like a breathless teenager. Let me let me quote to you from a brief passage. Any of you who's read any academic writing knows that it tends to be very dry, very understated, kind of boring. Um, and you certainly, it, it's not given to hyperbole, but um, the um, this guy's report on Kurdistan is, is littered with exclamation marks. And, and again, German-educated scholar, from, you just wouldn't expect this. He, he writes, such Jews, exclamation mark, men, virile and wild-looking, women wearing embroidered turbans, earrings, bracelets, even nose rings, and with symbols tattooed into their faces, our brethren and sisters. Now, you know, I know we go out in the American suburbs these days and we see our young Jews with uh, nose rings and tattoos. Um, but, uh, you know, back in the day in the 40s, you, you didn't expect to go up into the mountains of Kurdistan and, and see anything like this. So, you know, the fact that there was Jewish life in Kurdistan titillated the outsiders who occasionally made it up and all the way up into those hills. But it shouldn't have. All they had to do was read the Bible to know that Kurdistan, or Assyria as it was then called, was the very birthplace of the diaspora. After capturing Samaria, or northern Israel, in about 720 BC, the Assyrians marched the Israelites across hundreds of miles of desert and resettled them in places that the Bible actually names. And if you plot those places on old maps, you'll see that they pretty much overlap with the region that we today call Kurdistan. And for those of you who don't know exactly what Kurdistan is, it's not a state, um, despite the aspirations of the Kurds, uh, but a crescent-shaped um, region, about 200,000 square miles, um, that stretches up through Syria, up through uh, northern Iraq, southeastern Turkey, and then down through Iran. And that also actually spreads up into the Caucasus a bit as well. Now, so little was heard from these Jews that the Bible writes them off as goners. They were simply the lost tribes of Israel. This is probably a phrase many of you are familiar with. The lost tribes of Israel. And they were consigned to the realm of fable, um, really, as, as symbols of an irrecoverable past. That, that part of our Jewish history that we are sort of metaphorically sort of forever cut off from. They weren't even regarded as real after a while. They were just sort of, sort of thought to have sort of melted into, into the um, sort of larger Assyrian population. Now, over the years, um, Jews from places as far-flung as China, India, Venezuela, and Ethiopia would assert ancestry in the Lost Tribes. If you came from a place where there weren't supposed to be any Jews and you wanted a one-way ticket to Israel, the way you got in was to say, hey, I was one of those Lost Tribes. Remember from the Bible? Um, and and it, it often worked. It often worked. Um, but, you know, I think the Jews of Kurdistan might be said to have the strongest claim because, for better or worse, they stayed right where the Assyrians had put them. They weren't lost at all. They were just sort of too far outside what was then the Jewish beltway for anyone to notice. Now, life, life wasn't easy for the Kurdish Jews. The men in my father's hometown of Zaho worked into the night um, guiding timber down the Habu River. They'd literally like lash all these logs together and ride them down the river to Mosul to sell uh, for, for uh, timber. Um, and, or they would travel the back roads on donkeys um, selling goods out of, out of, their, out of saddlebags. So many were killed um, at the hands of roadway bandits, um, so many, both Muslim and Jew, um, that it was said of Zaho men that they never died in their own beds. I think that though men's lives were hard, I think in many ways women's lives were even harder. In addition to 
the sort of traditional duties of cooking and cleaning, they have to do just a tremendous amount of manual labor. My grandmother described being something like seven months pregnant and having to climb onto her roof with, with pails of tar to plug holes where um, the, the rain had leaked through. And there was also this expectation that women be kind of continually pregnant. My, my grandmother married when she was 14 years old and, and was pregnant almost immediately. She married a first cousin who was about eight years older than her. And sort of the highest duty of women in Kurdistan, Jewish women, was, was to produce children um, and healthy ones. But not every woman felt sort of cut out for that uh, assignment. My grandmother would wind up having 12 children, but only six would survive childhood. Uh, uh, her, uh, a sixth, uh, in fact, her six, uh, um, five would actually, six would survive childhood. Five of the others would die young. And a sixth, um, her firstborn, a girl named Rivka, was kidnapped by a wet nurse and never found. And you can imagine how traumatic this is for a young girl who is trying to, who sort of, you know, tends to be on the sort of shyer side and is trying to make a good impression in this new family. And her first child um, is, is taken by, by, by a wet nurse. And it's something that would stick with her for the rest of her life. Wet nurse, wet nurse, some, a woman who nurses, uh, yeah, uh, another, another mother's child. Um, my, my father was one of the lucky ones, um, and as befit his status as the eldest um, male child, he lived a pretty footloose life. Um, he swam with his friends in the Habur River, and this is the same Habur mentioned in the Bible. He, uh, he believed in angels and demons. And he knew how to cross the entire town of Zaho by leaping across its rooftops. These were these mud brick shacks. And he knew exactly where the rooftops came close enough together and have safely hopscotched from one end of the town to the other. And this is one of my favorite images when I was interviewing him, where I just, there's a magical quality to, to his childhood. Then, of course, comes the 1940s, um, which is sort of a, a cataclysmic uh, era for, for Jews everywhere. And, and even Iraq uh, is, uh, is, 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 isn't immune. Um, the new Jewish state, um, founded in 1948, was, was supposed to be the promised land. And for many Jews, particularly survivors of the Holocaust, of course it was. But for my father and his parents, life in Israel was harder, and its cultures in many ways less tolerant than Kurdistan's. Israel's European leaders branded the Jews from Kurdistan and other Middle Eastern countries as these kind of backcountry primitives. There are these mountain Jews from these strange places that were now enemies of Israel. They weren't really sure what to make of them, um, and they were sort of regarded with some suspicion. When my father's family arrived at Lod Airport outside of Tel Aviv in 1951, they were literally herded into a disinfection chamber and sprayed with the insecticide DDT. Speaking about Jews from the Middle East, a no less a luminary than, than Golda Meir uh, once said, how shall we be able to elevate these immigrants to a suitable level of civilization? And there was real hand-wringing at the highest levels of, of Israeli politics and, and sort of in, in academia over how are we going to absorb um, these Jews from Muslim lands? Um, even though, of course, the irony, of course, is that these Muslim lands were the Jewish way, home away from home for 3,000 years. I mean, Iraq is where the Talmud was written. Iraq was where uh, major yeshivas were, were built. Iraq was the place where um, Jews rose into the highest level of government and politics. There were, there were, there were Jews in the parliament in the night after World War I. There, were, uh, there was a Jew on the high court. There was even a, a Jew in the cabinet. Um, and, I mean, the ethnic mix, too, was startling when you go back and look at some of these statistics. I, I think after World War I, something like one out of three Baghdadis was Jewish. So there's this marvelous, rich, and, and, and long, um, cult, uh, this, this culture with a long history in Iraq that just sort of got swept under the carpet once, once Israel began absorbing immigrants from, from around the world. Now, my grandfather, who had hoisted himself into the ranks of successful shopkeepers in Iraq, 
never got a business off the ground uh, in Israel's more sophisticated economy. My grandmother struggled to learn Hebrew and um, lived a life of cultural isolation. Kurds of their generation faced so much bigotry that many would wind up lying about their heritage. They wouldn't want to say they were from Kurdistan because there was such a stigma attached to it. Then, as now, and I don't know if we have any Israelis in the audience or people who have spent time there, but you, even today, when you go to Israel, to say Anna Kurdi or to call someone a Kurd is to call them a blockhead or a moron. It's still sort of used as an insult, as an ethnic slur. Now, as a, as a teenager, my father watched um, with a sinking heart as his younger brothers and sisters forgot their native Aramaic. His mother tongue, he had learned, was once the uh, common language of the entire Middle East. It was the, really the English of its day. It was the lingua franca of what was then the very center of civilization. Aramaic was one of these marginal languages that stayed marginal and then sort of died off. It was literally the common language in Mesopotamia at, at a crucial time um, in history. And it, and it was a truly international language. And it, the other sort of shock, interesting thing about the story is that there's this linguistic orthodoxy that says that language follows power. Not so with Aramaic. Aramaic survived the rise of three different empires who just continued to use it because it was the language on the ground. In its heyday, it spread from the Mediterranean as far east to parts of India and China. Um, you know, and so there was really this truly um, multinational language in an era far before there was a printing press, uh, internet, television. But now my father saw, um, and with the dislocations brought about by war and the triumph of other languages, Aramaic had become a whisper and was growing quieter by the day. Now, my father, you know, he, he, was, he was the last boy bar mitzvah in his town in, in, Zaha, in, in Iraq. And he comes to Israel, and I think his father hopes that he'll maybe be a doctor. Believe it or not, there were no Jewish doctors um, in Zaho. Um, and there was this real you know, aspiration that here's this bright kid in Israel who'll finally have a chance. But when my grandfather started struggling to make ends meet, he said, you know, son, um, you're not going to be able to get, go to a kind of high school that would prepare you for medical school. You're going to need to go work uh, during the day to support the family. And so my father goes to a high school at night and works at a factory during the day, and he does this all the way through college. And during one of these day jobs, kind of feeling this loss of his, of his native tongue, but not really knowing what to do with it, he begins writing down every Aramaic word he can remember on discarded scraps of paper, anything he can find around the office, uh, you know, discard, uh, you know, old receipts, uh, notepads. And he would, you know, one day he'd focus on words for nursery rhymes, another day words for food. Another day, words he, he, uh, for feelings. Um, and he proceeded methodically like this for weeks, inscribing the scraps with Aramaic and stuffing them in his pocket. Now, scholars had long assumed that Aramaic was dead, but when, then, then my father shows up for his freshman year at Hebrew University, and he's this native speaker, and his, his professors don't really know what to make of him. Um, and, you know, he quickly gets their attention. And, they, you know, once he did, they said, you know, we have, we have this job for you. There, there's, this, there's this large population of Aramaic speakers here uh, from Kurdistan. And my dad's like, yeah, I, I know I, I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> but we want you to, you know, and most of them are illiterate. And we want, but we want you to go down into the language labs of Hebrew University and just ask these guys to tell their stories. Because this is the last one or two generation of speakers of this ancient language. And we need to figure out, and we want to preserve for history... Um, and, you know, what their language sounds like in this last sort of, um, in its death throes, basically, as it's sort of in its last one or two generations. So my father goes down as a young uh, college student into the language labs with men who had been his next-door neighbors in, in, in Zaha. Um, 
and these great men with these huge beards and you know just wild stories um, who again many of them were completely literate but they had like an iPod's worth of, of stories in their head and he begins recording um, and this further sort of deepens the interest of, of his professors and eventually that work would, would change his life because he would at the age of 26 he would get a letter from America um, it was an acceptance letter from Yale University offering him a full graduate scholarship to more formally document his dying mother tongue. Um, it was also important because it brought my dad to America where he would wind up picking up my, my Ashkenazi mother in Washington Square Park. Um, his pickup line was, was, was pretty clunky. I think it was something like, are you also a foreigner? Um, which would send most women running in the other direction, but he very quickly recovered by mentioning Yale, Jewish, and Israel in about one sentence, and uh, she gave him the time. Um, uh, you can imagine, you know, how exhilarating this must have been for some of my father's professors at Yale. These were largely, you know, European-educated um, scholars, and many, you know, and and here is this native speaker in their midst. And the analogy that came to mind uh, for me was that if you were an anthropologist uh, of, of, say, South American jungle tribes, and you show up to class one day, and you find a Yanomami tribesman sitting in the front row in full dress, taking lecture notes. It really, it really kind of made um, their, their head spin. I remember going to Yale when I was researching the book, and because I wanted to, I wanted to see, and I was still, and I'm still very much a journalist. Um, I wanted to go to the places that were important. My father talked to people who remembered him, and so I asked one of the uh, secretaries there, who had actually been there when my father uh, started uh, many years earlier. She was in her twenties then. Now she was in her in her sixties. And I said, "Did you, you know, keep records from, you know, uh, and I realized it was a long time ago?" And she's like. I keep everything. Um, and I said, well, can I see some of this, the, the recommendations that professors wrote about my father? Any, any, any files you have? So she opened this drawer, and she pulled out a recommendation that a professor named Marvin Pope had written about my father when my dad was entering the job market. I'll never forget this line from, from the recommendation. It was something along the lines of, Yonah Sabar would not only make a tremendous uh, uh, asset to any department of Middle Eastern languages, but also a wonderful ornament. Um, I don't know where, where, where you want to go with that, but, you know, it was just, it gives you a sense of the time and, and how, how unlikely uh, my father's career was in many ways. Now, I, I knew none of these stories, and, and I really care, and none of this history, and I really cared to know nothing about it until a cold night in December of 2002, actually in, in Annapolis, of all places, um, when my own son, Seth, was born. He had brown hair and, and brown eyes, just like me, and, and I felt this love um, stronger than anything I had known before. I mean, I was a cynical journalist. I didn't. I wasn't a very sentimental guy. Um, but I tell you, having your own kid changed something um, for me. You know, as a boy, I tried to remake myself. I tried to download this identity, like literally hit the sort of surfer boy icon, hit download, and that was. I felt like that's how easy it would be to sort of constitute an identity. I went to college clear across the country, wanting to get as far away from my parents as possible. And I disappeared into a world of my own making, uh, working my way up through a series of newspaper jobs and living you know, the kind of coffee and adrenaline-fueled life of a daily journalist. But you know, on that cold December night in 2002, as I held my own boy in my arms, I saw for the first time that I wasn't the end of the line, um, but rather a bridge between this ancient world that my father came from and this very modern, uh, very American one my own son would be growing up in. My own life wasn't the first chapter in some brand new story, but the middle um, of an ever-unfolding story of Jewish survival in lands not our own. Now, Jews made up just one-third of 1% of the population in Kurdistan, and it would have been 
very easy for them to melt into the background and become lost, just as the Bible had forecast. But the fact is that they kept their language, their stories, and their belief in a Jewish God alive for nearly 3,000 years. The tragedy is that when they finally left that paradise in the early 1950s, most left their language and their traditions behind. But not my father. Um, I think for reasons that owe as much to temperament as to this yearning for childhood loss. Remember, I mean, as as writers, we're we're always searching for metaphors, but it it wasn't lost on me that my father was the last boy bar mitzvah in in, in his hometown. At the very moment, Jewish law deems him a man. He's wrenched from this place to which he cannot safely return for decades. I mean, it would have been a a suicide mission for for Jews to to return um, to Iraq, um, certainly during the Ba'athist era. And so he can, he only, he has this very sentimental sort of child's attachment to, to the place of, of, his, of, his, of his youth. And so he, and this ends up defining him in many ways and defining his career. Um, and so he, he takes his language and his stories with them and he carries them across borders to a new land in hopes that they might live another day. Now, as a boy, I'd seen my dad as hopelessly mired in the past. He was this dinosaur who refused to make even token concessions to the 20th century. But now I began to see something different. Uh, He was a man who found a way to ride his past into the future, who discovered a way to sort of get ahead without having to let go. Now, um, as I I watched my own son um, grow from infant to toddler to little boy, I had to ask myself, would I now be the one to break the chain? You know, I soon saw, I think, as a writer and as a storyteller that, that I, I could do something, even if small, to keep the stories of the Kurdish Jews alive for at least one more generation. But I saw something else, too, um, and that's that I had a chance, and, and perhaps my last, to make things right uh, with my father, a man who had staked his entire belief system his, uh, on this notion that the past mattered and that our roots, even when they're stretched by these great distances, anchor us and sustain us. But as with many true stories, I I quickly saw that I wasn't going to be able to tie this one up with a pretty bow. In um, 2005, uh, I convinced my father to travel with me to his Iraqi hometown. And it wasn't the easiest sell. Um, You know, this was the middle of the insurgency. Uh, My father was nearing 70. It was kind of a big schlep for him on top of everything else. And he argued, um, not without reason, that, you know, maybe 2005 wasn't the ideal time for a sentimental journey to Iraq by two American Jews. Um, And, you know, it wasn't wasn't lost on me either that, you know, I mean, Ariel Sabar, Ariel Sharon, I I didn't think we'd be fooling anybody. Um, But I guilt-baited and begged, which had always worked when I was a kid, and and it did again. And my father caved and said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. And I think, I think for very paternal reasons, he said that, you know, if, 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 if you're going to be stubborn, you're going to go, and, but, and something happened to you because you didn't speak the language and you, didn't, you don't understand the culture, that would be on me. And so in this very paternal way, he came, and, and, I, and I, the strange feeling was that I, I needed him when I was there. It was the first time that I, I felt like I really needed my father. He, I needed him to explain things to me, to translate for me, and just to sort of, you know, literally to hold, hold my, almost literally to hold my hand. Oh, 2000, this was just a few years ago, so I'm 38 now, and this was 2005. So it was my mid-30s. Um, you know, but, so when we get there, I'm, I'm, and I, I think I probably confirmed my father's worst fears about his gung-ho son because I said, Abba, um, our mission isn't over. I actually have this other th- assignment for us, which is I want to go and try to find your kidnapped older sister, Rivka, um, and because if you're sincere about... Uh, holding on to your past, about the idea that we can sort of keep the past alive in some way, 
we can't very well neglect um, a woman who may still be alive, who is sort of a living embodiment of our past in Kurdistan. But my father enigmatically decided he wasn't going to help me, that if I wanted to find Rifka, I was on my own. And so just as I thought he and I were drawing closer, our relationship would face this wrenching final test. Now, on one level, my book is just one family's immigrant story. But on another level, I think on a deeper level, it's an exploration of what happens when we leave um, a distant uh, world for a modern one. My father was born, again, to an illiterate mother in a mud shack in the foothills of Kurdistan, a faraway place where for centuries time really did seem to stand still. Then in fairly short order, he lurches across these great distances and somehow winds up in a tenured professor's suite at UCLA. Um, in, in, in two decades, there's this giant gravity-defying leap from this faraway past to the blazing edge of the Western world, Los Angeles. I mean, this is a place obsessed with the future, a place where nothing stands still. And what interested me in writing My Father's Paradise was how a man survives this double exile. What can he take with him, and what does he have to leave behind? But there's also a more personal question, and I think it's a universal one. It doesn't matter where you came from. And I think it applies to the children of immigrants. And it's, you know, what happens when... That, second, that first generation, or the, the, the children of immigrants, really, when we find ourselves just to the, a few steps to the other side of that great gulf that our parents crossed. I knew it would be easy um, to march on, never looking back. I had a good job and, and a promising future at the Baltimore Sun. I was getting promoted, uh, winning, winning some awards. But I quit cold in the fall of 2004 because I saw something important slipping through my fingers. As the children of immigrants, I think the choice really is ours. Because if we wait, our ancestors and their homelands, as they once were, will elude us. If we wait, our children will have ventured too far into the blinding promise of America to know how to find their way back. When I was a boy, you know, shunning my dad and his strange looks and his funny accent seemed to be the only way to sort of survive um, in, in America. But what if I've been wrong? What if the past could remake you? What if it could redeem? Now, I know I haven't found all the answers yet, but if my father's story taught me one thing, it's this, that if you're clever enough and you know what levers to pull, you can stop time just long enough to save the things you love most. Thank you. Thank you.